Hey, this is Ed Robertson, and this is the Mountain and Prairie Podcast, where I introduce you to some of the innovative and creative individuals who are helping to shape the future of the American West. I meet most of these people through my work in ranch brokerage and land conservation, or through my hobbies and interests that revolve around spending time in the mountains. My guests include ranchers, writers, entrepreneurs, conservationists, athletes, artists, pretty much anyone who's doing important work and has an interesting story to tell. My guest today is Larry Yaw. Larry is a renowned architect based in Colorado's Roaring Fork Valley, whose work connects people with nature using contemporary, sustainable, and conservation-focused design. Growing up in rural Montana gave Larry a deep appreciation for the utilitarian character of ranch homes and their thoughtful integration into the landscapes, aspects that form the foundation of much of his work today. Through his design, Larry has demonstrated a unique ability to pay homage to the past while boldly pushing beyond preconceived notions of architecture in the American West. If I had to use one word to describe Larry, it would probably be adventurous. A quest for adventure seems to guide all aspects of his professional and personal lives. As you'll hear in our conversation, Larry has traveled the world many times over, sometimes with his full family in tow, seeking out enriching experiences everywhere from the South Pacific to the Swiss Alps. He's also intellectually adventurous, as evidenced by his deep knowledge of history, conservation, Native Americans, and many other subjects related to the West and beyond. Physical adventures are a daily occurrence for Larry, whether it's pedaling single track, stalking trout with his fly rod, hiking in the high mountains around Aspen, or shooting birds on the Montana prairie. All of these experiences provide the fuel that keep Larry's creative engine firing at turbo speed decade after decade. This was a super fun conversation, and I came away from it both inspired and enlightened. We discussed a broad range of topics, including Larry's architecture, his creative process, and how he's managed to stay consistently creative for so long. We chatted about his early years in Montana, some of his adventures around the world, and his thoughts on conservation in the American West. Larry is a true student of the West, so he had plenty of book recommendations, which are always great. There's a ton of interesting information in this interview, so don't forget to check out the episode notes on the webpage for links to everything we discuss. Thanks a lot. Hope you enjoy. You meet somebody at a cocktail party or on the ski lift and they say, what do you do? How do you answer that question? Well, I say, uh, uh, about what? <laughs> That's kind of what I do. <laughs> Are you talking about work? Are you talking about fun? Yeah. <laughs> similar. similar. No, I thought I was just going to answer is that that's a smart ass answer. Uh, but the, uh, what I do is, uh, I'm an architect mm-hmm. and I am a grandfather and I spend as much time outside as I possibly can in a variety of things, but nature is my sanctuary. Yes. I don't get it. I don't go that far. But believe me, somebody would just go roll their eyes. If you said, yeah, if you said, what I do, I, I, travel to sanctuaries and wild places uh-huh. they roll their eyes of course so I keep it simple and and if it goes beyond that well what kind of architecture do you do and I would answer that as I am hell-bent on creating a fit between contemporary architecture and nature mm-hmm. because I believe that nature whether it's through a big open window or through a view or through the ability to cross a threshold and be there is enriching Mm -hmm. to your life. And so 
the connection to nature part is a big part of what I just said in connecting, but I'm contemporary by persuasion. Sure. Uh, and there's some really nice stuff in Boulder if you see popping up in little places. Uh-huh. There's some you right know, in this neighborhood. Well, like this neighborhood or their, their neighborhood where the it's really very uh, tightly grained uh-huh. neighborhoods have been plopped down in, uh, in the 30s or 40s, you know, little, yep. little repeated uh, prototypes. Uh-huh. And if it's some of them are getting some magic put on them, you know, that speak of today's taste, today's rule, sure. today's culture. Uh, you know, post-millennium thing. God. Sure. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm not at all an architecture expert, but when I look at your work, I see that it seems that it's it takes into account a lot of the history of the of the West, and then kind of the classic architecture that people would think of yeah. when they think of the West. But then it seems that you're adding a more contem- some contemporary touches to it and kind of pushing it forward a little bit. Way forward, Is that yeah. I accurate? Think, and being born in Montana was amazing to me. It took me, I was always amazed, uh, at, you know, high school or when I started being able to drive and could get out and mm-hmm. hunt birds or just walk through country. But in rural ranching environments, mm-hmm. that the buildings are so simple mm-hmm. and direct and connected and or and that they they really formed uh enclaves mm-hmm. around ranch headquarters if you want to use that where sure. working proximities were important keeping out of the wind shelter and a little enrichment of a garden or something like that but it later occurred to me that this was contemporary architecture mm-hmm. in a in a in a way because simple utilitarian uh, interesting forms that didn't dominate the landform. Mm-hmm. That, it, boing, that light went off. That was so at that age, it, it started going off. It did. It, it started going off. I didn't connect it till I was then actually studying architecture. But then I, you know, then it it connected. Sure. And uh, so there's a respect for landform, land use, and a man-made object upon it were out of need mm-hmm. and a lot of these ranch compounds would be started with a small you know structure place to live then children and more cattle came along or sheep or goats or chickens and they had to add on to it so it's it was a, an architecture an additive kind of forms sure but they already had they always respected where the sun was yeah where the snow didn't slide mm-hmm. <laughs> Access, winds, all those things that came natural to a rancher mm-hmm. uh, were things that I learned should come natural to an architect. That makes sense. And so where where in Montana did you grow up? I grew up in Great Falls. Okay. Yeah, and uh, in, in, in went to high school till I was a senior, then, then to uh, uh, Sarasota, Florida for my senior year. Okay. Which is another aha moment. <laughs> what, what did you learn there? I would imagine that. I learned about- that there were, there was a whole different way to embrace life. Yeah. Uh, you know, just different activities, uh-huh. different values. I was, I painted in high school. Okay. And, and, and played sports as well. But the, but the painting part was sort of regarded as a sideline sissy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it just, it was so macho. When I got to, uh, Sarasota, that's cool. You paint. Wow. 
show me some stuff. Or and and it was it was embraced as strongly as, as a as a part of your a good a, a part of your character uh-huh. as was you know running running a touchdown. Yeah, that's neat. So that was a whole different change in in cultural mindset uh-huh. for me. And it was then it was water skiing and traipsing through cottonmouth filled you know swamps chasing uh-huh. wild turkeys and sure. hunting that and I was still hunting and all that stuff then but uh, and so at that point and so did you go to college in Washington State is that correct well I, there was a series of things from from um, Sarasota uh-huh. I then had a uh, I played start playing golf when I was in high school got it and so I played uh, went to play golf and study engineering because at that point we were in this technological sensed technological lag between mm-hmm. Russia. So everybody made heroes out of engineers when they came to speak in high school. So boom, I went to Florida State. Okay. Studied engineering. Did not turn me on at all. Mm-hmm. There was this. But the, was it the lack of artistic? Yes. Okay. I mean, in those words, sure. That's a simple way to say sure. it. Sure. So then, then uh, I finished that and uh, went immediately since that. I went to undergraduate more undergraduate school, the University of Washington in Seattle. Okay. And that was my another aha moment. I mean, it all came together. Passion, intellectual interest, the whole deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, art, artful, you know, being artful. Mm-hmm. Uh, finished that. And uh, those were the days when, you know, you get to go to graduate school now, you've, you, I've, I've watched these kids fill out thousands of forms, compete with thousands of people for that. Well, I got lucky, and I, I and I was so turned on at Washington. I mm-hmm. took a lot of liberal arts courses, and at the end of the year, my graduating year, they told me I had five eight a cap on me. Not like, bad. Are you kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and it was top of my class. Just cause, but it was because obviously you were working hard, but just you just loved it. It, it was passion, uh-huh. it, passion, passion driven, and and that served uh, two. So my in those as I use this paper trail to make another point my dean you know who became friends in fact i had my i did a uh my thesis was a uh uh a, a mountain village a ski village but oh, wow. not near parking you had to tram up to it uh-huh. so that was anyway so uh we got on a big boat in Lake Washington and I brought all my by then our professors were all friends they were it wasn't like you know march me through the grade point sure. and stuff uh, we had the the final thesis review out on this kind of yacht uh-huh. with all the professors and then we you know we went through it all cracked the bottle uh-huh. <laughs> and had a you know fishing good time together sure. and that was a nice way to leave but uh, that uh uh, where, where was I going with this? Well, there's two things that happened. So my dean, who was on a part of that, just calls up the dean at Harvard and the dean at Columbia and said, I got this guy and he, and he needs a ride. Done. I mean, yeah, that's, that's how simple it was. That's yeah. how simple it was then. And I went back to uh, Cambridge and looked at Harvard and and I, I talked to all the students. I thought that was better than talking to professors. And they were and like graduate students too, bitching about everything. <laughs> and that was the first place I went to Harvard. And then I went down to Columbia and they weren't bitching so much. So I decided to go That's to Columbia. It. 
you know, whether it was a good or bad move or not. I think it worked out for you. But the other good point, <laughs> the other good point about that was my my wife's uh, family from Seattle. I, I we were dating uh, at that early on okay. before graduation. Yep. And um, her parents were, uh, uh, I would say, you know, in some in a old family status in town. Uh-huh. So, you know, like revered sort sure. of thing. So naturally they wondered who this joker was, this long haired, you know, guy, Yaw, who wasn't uh-huh. Japanese uh-huh. or a Chinese. Which they first thought she was dating a Chinese architecture student because <laughs> of my last, last name. name. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so when I when I when we came back from some presentation deal, Phyllis and I, and we laid this five etiquette Beta Kappa, top of your class, and he just got into Columbia. Things changed. I was, that was the other aha moment. Yeah. I was finally okay. Uh-huh. <laughs> finally. That's funny. Uh, so you went to New York, uh, grad school, loved it. Um, but when you were there, were you were you always thinking about the West? Did you always have a plan to move back west, or did you? I didn't know? have a plan. There was a plan was uh, evolved, mm-hmm. uh, and it was really a lifestyle choice. Choices that didn't get made on that basis. You know, it was career made. Mm-hmm. Most choices of my contemporaries were career based. They were they were European graduate students and U.S. guys. Mm-hmm. They all went to work for the best firms. And I did too for a while. For two you did years. want to do that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I did that. Played that thing because I needed to learn something. And then we rented a little cabin in Vermont where uh-huh. I spread out. It couldn't have been bigger than this living room. I had papers all over the place because uh-huh. the, the taking the architectural exam for licensure uh-huh. was tough. It's four days, twelve hours a day. You didn't get to pick at subjects like you can now. You know, do one at a time. Yeah. So I studied my ass off here and had this cabin floor with papers, studies all over the place because I was, I heard it was such a pain in the ass. I didn't want to do it twice. Well, fortunately, I didn't have to. I went and took the test and made it Great. in New York. And, and I, I tell you, I'm to this day not sure it would have, that wouldn't have been a turning point. Uh-huh. You know, I think my grit would have kept me going, but I wasn't sure. Yeah. It was tough and wore, wore me out. I bet so. So uh, anyway, I got out of that, and then we started thinking about, well, okay, now you got this. You've sort of gone through those steps, as mm-hmm. it were, uh, professional steps. And, of course, we were hiking every day in Vermont, too, yeah. uh, other than studying, but um, and fly fishing and having, you know, I, mean, I needed that, those breaks. Sure. Uh, and, and uh, that, then we began to, Phyllis and I began together think about, wait a minute, you can't, we've got to drive from Boston. There are 20 lines to get to to go skiing, you know, on the highway, in the parking lot, in the ticket line, in the lift line. You know, I just, and then there's layer, only a thousand the layers between intent and fun were awesome, awesomely bad. Sure. Uh, against our grain. And none of that happened in the West because uh, I'd, I'd also gone to Aspen a couple of times in undergraduate school to study and meet a couple of architects in Aspen okay. and ski with friends and all that. 
and I taught I taught skiing in at the University of Washington. So, okay, okay. So as you know, mean, a means to do two things: a meet girls, and b to to get a little income. <laughs> the income part worked. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so so you were working at a big firm, and anyway, so we decided that we would go then go west to Aspen to figure out what to do. Uh-huh. And as I said before, the issue never came up. I joined some friends, started firm. So where do you think the, it seems to me that there's a um, kind of a, a track record of not being scared to go out on your own or not being scared of uh, a little adventure, whether it's. No, see, no ad- or, addictive seeking. Yeah. Adventure, really. And so, I mean, where do you think that came from? Because it seems like in, you know, your, your thought to leave the way, you know, leave New York or leave kind of a stable, normal path, strike out on your own. That's adventurous. I think your, your architecture is adventurous. I would, I, it, it's kind of goes against the grain. I think in it some came ways. way back in Montana. Uh, I, 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 my grandfather and father were outdoorsmen. Mm-hmm. So they took me with them. Was your family, were your parents from Montana? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, several generations oh, back. Oh, wow. yeah. Well, that yeah, is yeah. adventurous. Yeah, and then so I was, you know how... Rugged individualism. Like we talked about you taking your kids for a hike and mm-hmm. burying them in the pleasures that they never would have understood to be part of their lives. Well, that's kind of, it happened to me with fishing, hunting, camping, you know... Horses, lands, ranch, all that stuff. Did you have siblings? Pardon? Yeah, did I did have, have one brother. Okay. Yeah. I'm sure you guys had some adventures, huh? Yeah, we did. <laughs> He's not as, he wasn't at that point. He is now uh, uh, as adventurous as I was or uh-huh. didn't poke out. So I would get uh, either a friend, we'd ride bikes out mm-hmm. with our 22s, you know, and go shoot rabbits and, and that sort of stuff. And then we'd ride bikes out further and just walk in the prairie. Uh-huh. And, so I always struck, or on my own, and there were a lot of it was on my own, and that's kind of a uh, quiet trademark, is that when I couldn't find anybody to do it with, that re- that remains today, Yeah, uh, I just go do it. And I, first of all, found the kind of excitement in what's over that ridge, uh-huh. what's at the end of that valley, and it, it was always rewarded. Sure by these sanctuaries and excitement. And I just sit there, let it be embraced by this stuff. And and there was a satisfaction of completing an adventure, mm-hmm. starting one A and being rewarded by it. And I think that just sort of fed into my life. And I, I, when we were parents, uh, we went to Sarasota, Florida, my senior year, because my mom had MS and there was some, alleged guru who's mm-hmm. there. So that took me there. I bitched, moaned all the way down. Mm-hmm. Probably, I think I did, Amy. Yeah. I was told I did. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, when I got there, God, this, the light went on. How how cool that was. So I was rewarded again for, I mean, let's call it an adventure. But I was placed in a place that I didn't want to be, and I loved it. Mm-hmm. I learned to love it, or it... It loved me or something, you know, sure. there was a fit. Sure. Well, I think a lot of that is. So I think it's been that way, uh, whether alone, I, I always like, I'd always rather share these moments with someone else or some 
group of other people. Uh-huh. And Phil's nice still it is. We just got back from walking over 100 miles to the Swiss Alps. Did you really? Yeah. Maybe 4,000 vertical a day. Where was it? I mean, what, was it around uh, Mount Blanc or something? Or something? No, no, it's Switzerland. Oh, okay, okay, so got that's it, France. Got it. Got it. Yeah, uh, yeah. I started in Gestad, and we just went village to village over these passes and all this stuff. And so Phyllis, early on, you know, was a, my partner in these things. She, sure. she uh, wasn't as sort of high oriented as I was, but boy, she grabbed onto it. I mean, she's an addict. Did she grow up uh, doing outdoor adventure as in well? In Seattle, or? yeah, not as much as I did. They, they, her parents had a boat which they went up to Desolation Sound and oh yeah, I've been there in Canada. Yeah, that so. that's intense. Yeah, when I, I did a semester in Knowles up there, and oh, I remember okay. when the when the you'd have to really time everything with the tides because the tides were so uh, there was such a huge amount of up and down that. Between the little islands, it's like a raging oh, yeah. river. Oh yeah, no, they're they're yeah, they're called tide rapids. It, I mean, it was it was wild. They are. That was kind of my first real taste of, uh, yeah. of adventure, where you had to kind of time things, uh, like you didn't want to get caught out picking picking, uh, you know, digging for clams or, or you know picking oysters off rocks. Sure, because then the tide comes. Because you may. Not bailed away back. <laughs> oh yeah, I remember we were hiking along the coast at one point, and there are all these dead trees uh, that that wash up, and the tide would come in against those cliffs. And if you had to be out of there because all those logs would start moving around and smashing the cliffs, I mean, yeah. it's that ain't you know, coming from North Carolina. I, I just couldn't get oh, yeah. my head around it. Well, that was her deal. And then, uh, so that was mountains, and she skied. And her parents took her to Sun Valley, and. Which they did every year, and she skied. So she even did. She was into outdoors okay. for sure. Yeah. So it it sounds like you've done a, a ton of international travel as well. Um, has that? Yeah. I'm sure it does. Um, but but how has that influenced your your work and your perspective? Oh, a lot. Uh, firstly, uh, not unlike Sarasota, seeing the way culture has has. Culture in place mm-hmm. has created placemaking and style, if you want to. I hate that term, but style in different places. Yeah. And, and it was like walking through hill towns and seeing these little spaces mm-hmm. that we don't see here, absent of traffic signals mm-hmm. and turn left and right, wayfinding and exploration. Mm-hmm. We're all part of that. And that's been, we've, we've probably spent nine or 10 months of our lives in Argent, in the Argentine mountains. Oh, really? There, and Chile, and then and we also finished a trip in Norway, hiking the fjord country uh-huh. last spring. So what it, 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 it teaches you that, uh, and our kids also, that not everybody is, you know, sort of white and lives in suburbia. There's poverty, there's happiness in poverty, and there's black and white and yellow people all over the world, and they're no, no, no different than you. All our kids learned those lessons through our travel. We took them on in 1980. We just said, here's an adventure. We bagged everything. Told my told my the guys working in my office that I was going to take six months off and have a sabbatical. And that, so that resulted in a tradition in our firm where every... Uh, year another one of our partners could take six months and do whatever he wanted with that's great so we did 
took our little kids. Lindsay was three. Uh-huh. And then uh, Kirshner, our oldest daughter, was 12. And wow. we went basically around. When I say around the world, it was it was adventure by adventure, you know, sailed in the South Seas uh, all over the place. Uh-huh. And, and on a bare boat or with a captain where we didn't know what the hell was going on. And then, <laughs> you know, Australia and up to Indonesia and up to Kashmir. And we hiked for a month in the high Himalayas, bordering uh, Pakistan and China and and, Ka- and Kashmir. Wow! Uh, and you know, so the kids we did that out of adventure, uh-huh. and we did it because we wanted the kids to get it that uh, they're not alone in the world, uh-huh. and uh, there's no strangers in the world. I think that is a, such yeah. a great lesson to teach kids because I, my wife grew up um, with a lot of international travel and that was kind of her focus in college and spent yeah. a lot of time in developing nations. And and then we actually moved to Costa Rica for a year right after we got married. And I'd, I'd been to Argentina for a climbing trip, but that's when you get in the mountains, it's the mountains and it does, there's not yeah. really interaction with Which people. Which part of Argentina? Uh, Mendoza, up Aconcagua. Oh, Aconcagua. Yes, yes. Her son did the- the, the Polish glacier. Okay, yeah. I did the very, well, I went to the base of Polish glacier and then went around it and went okay. <laughs> That's, well, they, that's they, they did it because they, they met all these Swedish guys who left a ton of really cool stuff up there. They couldn't make the weather, wouldn't let them go up that route. Uh huh. So they went up to this sort of little platform where there's all this stuff, oxygen, really? tents. These guys were beat up and on their way out. So uh-huh. they went that way and they're, and they're, they're technically capable. Sure, you know? sure. That, yeah, it's know. an adventure down there. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, so at age 30, I guess, we moved to Central America, and it was it was life-changing. It was a formative experience for me at age 30. Yeah. And, and it changed my whole perspective on really, you know, one of the biggest things, and you can you can appreciate this, is how much stuff Americans have. Everything, you know, from the, the massive houses oh. to the, I remember we came home for Christmas, and I went to the grocery store, and there was an entire aisle of nothing but bottled water. And it just, it, it blew my mind. And I was thinking, I wonder how, how I would be if I'd experienced this at age six or seven. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's, that's really, and I would imagine that that international travel really has influenced your work. You know, it really has. Now, uh, culturally it does because it, it teaches you that social factors, mm-hmm. cultural factors, whatever they are, affect outcome in habitation, for example. Mm-hmm. Not only relationships and form, but in social in, in social contact, mm-hmm. so you learn there's a, a bunch of ways to do that. that but it's it's formative, and that if you take the time to understand the nature of a site, I mean the pure mm-hmm. nature of it. If you take time to understand the history of place and the settlement, mm-hmm. human settlement, and what it did or didn't do, there are lessons there. Oh yeah, to to not do or to, <clears throat> or or to integrate. Sure. One, one question I have, I, I read a, a ton of history of the West, and there seems to be a, a, a disconnect between you know, when people, when white people moved out here, it was because they wanted to be alone. You know, the whole myth of rugged individualism. I want my 160 acres, be by myself. Nobody, I, I want to be completely self-sufficient. That's the homestead part of Western expansion. But yeah, but now we're, people are coming around and realizing that the only way it's going to work for any of us to live out here is cooperation, community, figuring out how to share yeah. And so how do you think about that when you're designing, yeah. you know, when you're working in these mountain communities where there's this history of 
Leave me alone. <laughs> and you're trying yeah, to build you're, community. You're talking about the territorial imperative, I think, is what it's uh-huh. referred as. Uh, a couple things. Uh, I create, I coach small that you can live simply mm-hmm. and in, and in rich ways without having a show off house. Like you just sold your company and you want to build it bigger than the next corporate show off down the road. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, so I, I really preach small, uh-huh. contemporary, and uh, the when there's a lot of aspirants, a lot of people, a lot of money. Mm-hmm. So I teach them to try to teach them through the experience of collaboration sure. to understand that you don't need to do it. The reason you're here is out there. It's not here. It mean, you should have, you know, and don't make, don't make a, be- a master bedroom with a reading suite or that, nah, 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 nah. because you should just sleep there and get the hell out, get up in the mornings and get out and hike. I love that. In you an know, article your daughter wrote, there was a quote that I have in here that says, I'm not going to design three little sitting areas around the master bedroom so you can sit inside all day. You get out of bed, you have breakfast, you go ski, you get out there. I love that. Yeah, that's exactly. And I, I, I use different vocabulary is to to try to you know you get to tune into a person's core mm-hmm. and try to you know it's I'm not preaching or teaching lifestyle I'm teaching how uh, economic you know live rich live of economic means in all ways mm-hmm. you know don't throw your shit on the trail to uh, don't buy excessive this or that don't have a TV in every room whatever that happens to be or, or what fits that deal. And sometimes I, I, I'm not successful mm-hmm. in, in all that, uh, but it's a mantra. Sure. You know, and I try to teach that them that there's a, the process is a creative adventure. Get into it. I you bet know? that's interesting trying to teach people because I would think a good number of them, they, they're completely focused on the end goal, which is, I wanted this great house in Aspen, but yeah. I would think that you miss a lot if you don't really well, immerse yourself in the process. You miss a lot. I try, we even, the whole firm, tries to make them authors of their own house mm-hmm. or per- strong participants in the creative process. So there's a reward in that and having you kind of think about this, make a decision about this. I wonder if I made the right decision. You know, all those things that... Mm-hmm. Accompany a, a courageous creative process, <laughs> and and in the end, they really appreciate. They feel like they have made their house. They have, you know, like I don't. I don't back off to the point where I'm sim- simply the instrument of their will, because mm-hmm. uh, uh, I enjoy, you know, the whole thing too. Sure. But if you can make them feel like they had a very special part in the creation of saying they have ownership mm-hmm. and owner and emotional ownership is a really cool kind of an outcome to have. Definitely. Even if I'm helping them get there. Definitely. Especially for something, you know, for anything, but especially for a home, you know, there's oh, yeah, yeah. Well, then then it's very personal. It's not the rep, they're not representing stockholders, mm-hmm. you know, where they've got to probably be a little more. Yeah. That's cre- a little more, uh, Conventional, mm-hmm. and I, I teach them to take to have. Don't be afraid of whim. 
Don't be afraid of, you know, understand that if you turn that corner and come to this space where the light comes in like that, it only focuses on one tree and the sun and the leaves are different four times a year. See, that's an aha moment. That's special about your house and yeah. your experience. Because uh, it's all about experience in the end. You know, uh, it is. And it's about being a partner, not only with your wife, but with a team mm-hmm. that has an end goal. And it might, you know, that end goal is not a linear process at all. It's exploring here, learning, pulling in, integrating, doing this and that. Oh, yeah. And we forgot about the. You know, places for your spoons finally, but yeah, <laughs> you know. Um, so, when you're in the midst of this creative process, I love learning about creatives and how they work. Yeah. I just think it's so interesting. And so, when you're when you are creating, is it a? I mean, obviously, it's challenging, but is it? Do you enjoy? Do you really enjoy the creative process? Like this is fun, or it's is it fuel? It's absolute fuel for living for me. I so mean, it's you, that important. Every bit of it, you every, enjoy this, every this bit struggle, of it. but it is a struggle, I'm sure. There are points, you know, for the regulatory world is full of layers, and you know, you got to go. You do it, but you learn either skills or process to make those uh, with the pain in the ass parts of the process, uh-huh. the part that are not just create but you can be creative and you have to have those tools in order to be creative if you understand that and you go through and you deal with those things you deal with them because they're another tool to let you be creative sure so the that process i would imagine that process and the travel and just the you're always it seems like you're always out seeking new experiences is that what allows you to continue to be creative after all these years oh yeah Oh God! Because I, mean, I, I would I, think after a while, how do you how do you come up with with new stuff? But it seems like you're always getting new inputs, processing every. It. If you view every situation as unique, mm-hmm. it, which it is, by the time you look at where it's located, the seasons, the time of day, the flora fauna, the culture, the people themselves, the lifestyle they bring to this moment, mm-hmm. everything is unique. Yep. All you have to do is understand that and and let that play into the creative process. That way, it's just a, a rolling wheel. Sure. There's no conclusion to the creative juice. That's exciting. Yeah, that's, <laughs> it is. Um, so when you look back at, at maybe, let's say, after two years after you moved to Aspen and been on your own, and then now, is there what's the biggest change in your work or in your outlook on your work? Probably uh, to a couple things, either understand the purpose or purposelessness of, of overregulation. That's just a sidebar. Uh, I think that uh, I'm more poignantly concerned. And make choices on the fact of who people are. Mm-hmm. You know, I like honest people. I like people who are not shady, who make her out front, who make who basically bring integrity to the table. Yep. So I make those choices, and I think those things play into the architecture. So there's a integrity, more focused integrity about connection to nature, mm-hmm. connecting people to nature, not just architecture. It's about experience, mm-hmm. and so. Not not 
another change maybe I, I was very facile at sculpting crazy wonderful things but they were but early on they were more about the sculpting than the experience of being of inhabiting that makes sense so that has become more focused uh uh part of the end game i guess is, sure. you know it's sort of it's sort of like you finally take some of the fat off the bone yeah yeah like we get, were talking and, about before and we get down recording. to the bone sure <laughs> <laughs> that makes it so you know your work is obviously connected to nature you've got a personal interest in nature i know we talked about that you serve on some boards of uh, conservation organizations in the just area one at just the at the roaring roaring fork conservancy, conservancy yeah, yeah. um and so that's talk, about watershed protection in a real nutshell. I mean, sure. I could go on and on, but so one of the, I, everybody I have on this podcast is somehow conservation minded in, in what they do. And the thing I've found is that conservation can mean the word conservation can mean a lot of things to a lot of different people. So what does the word conservation mean to you? Well, I'll back up a little bit. I think there's a point in your life where you have, reach some of your goals, some, mm-hmm. not all, because hopefully that passion's an unending stream. But it's time to give back mm-hmm. in everybody's life, and you should be thinking about that. We preach that to our, to our young you know, architects out of school. Get connected with the decision makers today in a nonprofit world. Mm-hmm. Give back. That's part of the criteria for working besides being a hot jock in our, (laughs) they just happen to be in our, in our firm. So I think that, that is a, the thing about, where did this question start? Giving anybody, giving back. What do I think about conservation? What would be your definition of conservation? Because everybody seems to have such a, you know, it can mean saving the whales or it can mean saving the No, I think it's, strongest thing connected to me is the preservation of natural habitat. Mm-hmm. I mean habitat for human, for enjoyment of humans, connected with a balanced habitat for the creatures that have always lived there. We're just, I, I'm very much of the Plains Indian mentality. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I always, and I'll go back to that in a minute, but, uh, and I've studied it because when I was, Another aha moment when my adventurous, or way back when, was uh, I worshipped the idea of Indians, but that you know Indians and adventure. Yeah, I read that. I was going to and, and ask that you. was, uh, but see that at that point, where that was the warrior chief image. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the glorious guy on the painted horse with sure. shit hanging on him and his <laughs> spear and you know uh, beads and. Uh, but that translated into a real study of Western movement and the effect of our expansion on, on the rituals, the belief systems, and the, okay. and, and the shrinking of their environment. We cause a shrinking of their environment. So back to the conservation, and that's a factor, or let's say a contributing, early contributing mindset mm-hmm. headed that way, is I believe in preserving the natural world. Okay, and there, that that has many exponents to it, from from uh, bitching about where oils oil leases are gotten, but but anything to having to do with preserving uh, a watershed mm-hmm. or the natural, even though we have paths through it, 
you know, but let's say walking lightly in nature. Mm-hmm. That would be my idea. The ability to share that thing, share those ideas, the spirituality of being in nature. Mm-hmm. So, so that it backs up to creating places where nature can be itself. Sure. Okay. Whether there's a fire there or not, that's mm-hmm. part of nature. Yeah. Um, well, and that seems to um, be, that seems to be reflected in your work, you know, finding this balance between there are going to be people here. And so we want to yeah. have a, a, you know, somehow you know, keep yeah. it all connected. Yeah. And even in architecture, the idea of treading lightly on the earth mm-hmm. is, is a prevalent. That's what I admire about your work that I've seen is that it's, mm-hmm. You know, the, the, when a lot of people think of moving to Aspen or moving to Jackson Hole, they think of building some massive log cabin that sits on Jackson is logged, logged oh, yeah. out. And it's, it's, um, I feel like your work is, is much more respectful of the landscape. And in the old days, that's, there were log cabins and, and that was the, the way to do it. But it seems like yours yeah. is, I've never done a log. Yeah. House, and it won't. Yeah. No, that's, <laughs> that's good. There are enough of them out there. And then, and the whole, and tied into this whole thing is the idea of sustainability. When you walk lightly on the earth, you make, if you want to view a house or any piece of architecture as a menu, and you pick on the menu, you're picking on extraction mm-hmm. of, of resources somehow. Yes. And, you know, if you do it out of wood, there are forests that you can choose the, where the wood comes from that it's part of a natural harvest or sure. something. But, uh, that whole idea of sustainability has been has been another thing I plugged in way too strong emotionally, mm-hmm. uh, philosophically, and choice wise. Yeah. So when you you're careful to make these choices that let that don't extract from wherever part of the world they come from uh, needlessly or unreplaceably. Sure. So that's more materiality, if you know, kind of choices. Yeah. But they go way back to rainforest <laughs> and to Brazil and, and wherever this stuff comes from. Uh, We're all connected. So I would like to hear more about your experience with the, with the Indians because I, I read that in that great article yeah. your daughter wrote, which I'll link that on the webpage so other people yeah. can read it because she, she – is much better at, at this stuff than I am. But well, uh, it was an interesting thing. That? I said I was always excited at the, the adventure, the romantic mm-hmm. version of as a young guy to eleven, age twelve. My family took me to Browning, Montana. We had a cabin, or there we rented a cabin up there. Started plunk in the middle of the Blackfeet okay. Indian Reservation, and never don't ever say Blackfoot. It's black feet. Black feet. Yeah. Okay. I mean, a lot of people sort of say black foot, like it's past tense of black feet or something. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, that was the core of the, the town or the these thousands of acres of black feet. Sure. Reservation was. And there was, in this town, uh, at the end of it, was a kind of a Indians made backrests out of willows. And okay. painted them and stuff there. But there was this girl my age sitting in a white doeskin dress with beads, mm-hmm. vermilion on her face, ermine tail on her bri- on her braids. I fell in love with her. Twelve. Uh-huh. I mean, I was infatuated with her. And that infatuation, uh, I just walked right up to her. Uh-huh. And it wasn't like romantic. It was fascination. 
with the whole Indian thing with her as a person, Virginia Homegun. So we became friends. Oh, wow. And it, then, shorten that out, she invited me to have dinner with her family in the t- tent next door. They had a co- community dinner. I mean, this is all civilized stuff, sure. by the way. Uh, turns out her old man was the head of the Blackfoot Council. Wow. So two nights later, I'm in this tent with a fire, and they do this whole ceremony about making me a Blackfeet. Okay. Really? That was an aha moment. Now, I've, then I, I sort of lost, I, I made every, uh, summer later touch with her. She grew up and I grew up, uh, kept touch with her. I called her then trying to track her down 10 years ago. And she was still there, and she didn't remember me. Oh, really? <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> but she, I said, you, you know, it was so important. It was such a vivid memory and experience to me. I, I was really sort of shocked that she didn't remember me. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't that important to her. I was just another gringo. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> so that was, uh, that then started translating to reading everything I could about you know, not not only specific, you know, people, Red Cloud or whoever it was and what their war game was, what their attitudes were, their spirituality, their their rich the rituals that bound them to the earth. And it was all about balance, about we are just another two legged version of Buffalo. We all had when they'd kill, for example, a buffalo or they'd kill a kill or wound a you know, a guy from a different clan, uh, they would they would worship the spirit of that thing before they took the meat home or they were, before they walked away from scalped him or whatever it was, you know. Uh, that's an exaggeration. Not often did they scalp each other. Sure. They waited till the white guys showed up. <laughs> <laughs> that was taking coup that counted. So what book are there? But anyway, then, go ahead, uh, go ahead. Yeah. Then I started, uh, I've always sketched and painted. Okay. Always. So I decided after going through a whole, I made a book on, on uh, which Lindsay has, anyway, a whole book on pen and ink sketches all over the world. Oh, really? And then I went to watercolor because I could pack it in a pack. And then I got a studio in our house. I started oil painting. And the first thing I did was called a series called Once Proud. Mm-hmm. And that was a tried to depict the American Indian once proud their pride denigrated by positioning the positioning we did mm-hmm. with them so I did this whole series of, wow. and I'm still doing it I bet that's pretty emotional doing that oh it's way emotional and it takes a kind of a contemporary form it's it's almost a, a you understand if you understand the title of the painting you would get it immediately if you walked up to it I'm not sure you get it where what it's or you get some of it, but you wouldn't get that it is about depicting this horrible cultural positioning that we have, you know, everything from broken treaties to shitty land to oh gosh, we discovered land on the land on the on the by treaty we gave you twenty years ago, so fuck you. Yeah. You know, that kind of stuff. Sure. Uh, so I, I tried to depict that once proud. But now denigrated uh, sense of sense of being mm-hmm. that is either 
tribal or or because you're an individual in tribal. I mean, you get a check from the BIA and your dad went out and spent it buying booze. So why shouldn't I? You know, it's a free ride. But notwithstanding, there and and the, and the values of their heritage that are lost through sort of white man's ways and then living off BIA checks. You know, these things about beating and, and art form don't get passed down from mother to daughter. Yeah. So it's all about all that stuff. That, I'd like to see that at some point. That whole series of paintings. Yeah. Um, are there any books that stand out in your mind that are that everybody should read about Indians, Native American culture? I'd probably have to send you the list. It's my bookshelves. That full, the last that. one I read was uh, uh, the story of Red Cloud, uh-huh. who uh, was a war chief and a, and a fabulous tactician. I could send you all these if you want. Uh, sure. I'm always anyway, looking for good book records. But see, it, 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 it talks about people in who, as the, not as a great war chief, but their mindsets and how he outflanked these stupid blue coats, you know, uh, who were trying to chase him down yeah. constantly. And I love that because you learned about the sort of, well, you know, you know, the Custer deal. Custer oh, yeah. was an egocentric fucking maniac. Oh yeah. Was Complete only interested wacko. in self-promotion basically. And yeah. he got his ass trapped and shot up. Yeah, but you know, there were, there were a lot of people like that who they had different purposes. There were some, and every, you know, read about the, Kit Carson chasing Navajos or about Cochise and how he, you know, out, out thought in, in, in terrible, harsh environments, out, out, outgunned with 10th people. Sure. And it's not just about them winning. It's about their, how they did it and the belief systems that, that about being part of the land that was being shrunken. And how that fired their, their you know their, their uh, warlike the warlike qualities of these people who didn't live warlike really yeah until we showed up and, and we they had to I um I recently read one called Empire of the Summer Moon it's about the Comanches yeah, 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 yeah. I thought that was that's a Comanche good. deal yeah um, those tough, tough, tough babies weren't they really tough yeah it's it's insane. that's one of the ones i've read long ago but that's kind of a mainstream one but i bet you've got some some pretty good ones that i would i got a, a little more uh historically researched you know? sure yeah yeah little, well i'll get that list from you because i would i would love that I, yeah i read um another good one that i read is blood and thunder by hampton sides that's really good i couldn't believe how good that was sides is a great author. yeah he is he is one of the most talented authors everything he writes is just amazing yeah. Blood and Thunder was, I should have put that down there. That's one of the really great, and so is he as an author. Sure. I need to read everything he's ever written. Yeah. Um, well, there, I've got some questions that I've asked um, pretty much everybody I've had on the podcast, and I've gotten some pretty interesting answers, and it's good to kind of compare and contrast. Sure. Um, this one, while we're talking about books, are there any favorite books or books that you recommend to people um, time and time again over your career? Uh, and it can be about architecture. It can be about the West. Just a book that's been important to you. I, I'd have to say it. It the ones I've recommended, other than mindless fun, you know, like espionage, bullshit, you read airplane <laughs> yeah. novels, uh-huh. uh, would be C. 
sightings. Blood and Thunder would be one I rec I've already recommended to a lot of people, and mm -hmm. I'd use that because it, it, you know, he deals with everything. If you want to use the term conservation, mm -hmm. he the deconstruction yeah, yeah. is the opposite side of conservation, uh -huh. and the deconstruction of these lands that were fertile to the meaning of being mm -hmm. as as a group, a clan, mm -hmm. a tribe. Yeah, I, I thought that was... Uh, so I, I just, I mean, I, I was hesitating there because I, I was thinking all the books I recommended to people read are about Western, the, the history of the West and the conflicts of its, of its, when it's so raw. of its expansion. It's still, you know, it's just a few generations ago when that was going on. 18, listen, this all started in the 1840s, late 1840s, 1850s were hot spots all over because people were trespassing, as it were, into what were considered trespassing into either lands they were had or, or were given, but mostly had yep. for generations, hundreds of years. Uh -huh. And, you know, of course, it began when the horse came up through Spain, but the Spaniards and conquistadores. But uh, that, that changed the whole deal for the Indians, whether their movements and whether they had, whether they, how much they moved. And that was a big change for all the West. But anyway, uh, yeah, those, uh, those books are the ones I've always recommended to people because they're, most people don't have a bloody clue no. except except having memorized some dates and in, in history courses it, it is really amazing how people it's about people yeah and it's about mindsets and about you know the uh, the expansionism was was uh, that's all I get that I get that but but it was uh, the, and the idea of just I made it this far and I didn't get scalped and all that stuff was okay. That was in a good end game and protecting my family and all that stuff. I mean, I'm going to have to hunt on these lands, but there was no, not, it wasn't even a question. Was there any honor or, or, uh, principle to what to do or not to do? It was all about us, me and expanded all ex cost. territory, territorial imperative, riches, mining, yeah, I think that's what interesting what you said. That it's all about people because that's I, I read a ton, and I found that just reading straight up history books is boring. But if I read a biography about a certain person in a certain time frame, oh yeah, then it's so interesting. And then it, it there are all these different ways you can jut off, and you can you know they'll mention another person, and you can read a biography by that person, and you start yeah. kind of putting it. That's, and that's kind of like this podcast. Yeah. You know? Even about like the book Gentlemen of London, you've read that? No, I have not. Oh, it's, a, it's about, uh, is it called Gentlemen of London or something? Gentleman's the wrong term. But anyway, it's about Edward R. Murrow and, and all these guys who were trying to influence Roosevelt into joining England against uh, the Axis. Okay, okay. And all the... All the personal stuff. That That's what it's all about. Yeah. Harriman was there. Averill Harriman. <laughs> I mean. <laughs> yeah, I, I need to read that. That, that sounds great. Um, do you have any documentaries or films that you love or that have been important to you? Uh, actually, re most recently, uh, Peter McBride's mm -hmm. did a, a little movie. 
And the, and the book about the green, you know, going down the... Uh, the Emerald Mile. Uh, Emerald Mile. That was great. Uh, I mean, that's a book, not a documentary, but it's, well, it's, it documents it. The thing. book, you're, the documentary you're talking about, was it about that boatman in the Grand Canyon? No, it was about the Grand Canyon itself. Oh, about the Grand Canyon. Yeah. Okay, I've seen... Uh, yeah. I'll look that up. It probably... Because it's... Uh, uh, I have... A, a lot of opportunity in Aspen that we go to, we can see a film fest every night, sure. practically the Institute or wherever, two film fests. So I don't go for entertainment more. I go, I think I go for when things seem to align themselves with my growing or, or in-house interests, in hard interests. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. So I'd, I'd say that, that the, I'll look that one up. See, that's exactly why I ask. I get all these good book recommendations. And I know. <laughs> I get this. This is a search for a book Even if list. nobody listens to this, I, I win. I get book, book recommendations. Um, so you you obviously do a ton of outdoor recreation. We we didn't even really hit on that. But oh. hiking, mountain bike. When I talked to you the other day, you just got off your mountain bike. What what, what else do you do? Uh, God. Everything? Hiking, camping, backpacking. Mountain biking, road biking, uh, fishing, hunting. hiking, fly fishing, bird hunting is a big passion. Uh-huh. I returned to Montana and South Dakota for, I mean, I just, an addict. I bet so. But that's from, you know, being smart about my grandparents' father and father were bird hunters, uh-huh. upland bird hunters, pheasant and, and uh, Hungarian partridge and yeah. sharp-tailed grouse and all that crap. Is there any hobby you have that would be surprising for people listening? That would surprise them? Uh-huh. I don't know if the painting would surprise. See, I paint for me. Yeah. I, I have such a low opinion of my own character <laughs> that I, I believe that if I had an art show and sold things, that I would probably start painting for them and not for me. So I just stay away from that. That's smart. <laughs> that's very wise. I think that's uh, that takes self-restraint, too. I, I, I like yeah, that. Let's see, but see, I'm, I'm so bound up in the creative process of creating a painting that, uh, I mean, I could be out there for hours. I usually come home, change into my paint bibs, which really look horrible, but they keep paint off of things that Phyllis doesn't want paint on. <laughs> Not me, but, uh, uh, and I will get a weed drum of single malt. Uh-huh. I take it out to my art studio, and if this is before dinner, she'll wait sometimes till 8.30, uh-huh. and then just say, enough's enough, you know. But I will go back. Sometimes, I mean, it's just like great. anything you're passionate about. You don't know where time goes. You're just so involved and I remember another experience like that when I was doing pen and ink sketches all over Europe and Argentina wherever you're in Montana uh, I would sit someplace like in Frenzy or uh, Florence mm-hmm. uh, or some some urban kind of place and I would sit there in my little thing and it would be looking up there and people at first I was uh, felt self-conscious because people would stop and say what are you doing and I would say I'm sketching or something like that to yeah. get rid of them. And after a while, I could close my mind down on just the sketch. And I would wake up literally sort of wake. I mean, I'd be yeah. so focused. It was like being in a daze. That's great. And I would wake up and the sketch would be there. And I didn't know, I didn't even acknowledge this crowd. Not not crowding around me, uh, crowding 
because to watch me what I was doing, but crowding around me to get out of, you know, go around me. Sure, <laughs> to, sure. To let the passage of pedestrian, uh-huh. the noise, the, the, the sounds, the babble, uh, that's, uh, you know, you know, people work real hard that's to get the in that same, state. And that, that's no different from any other passion here. If you're onto something. Sure. And you know, and there's, you haven't, you know, there's this part about creativity where you're stuck, but the promise of fulfilling that is there. Mm-hmm. Somehow the energy that you're going to get it, mm-hmm. that is amazing. Yeah. It's an amazing moment. I really think being able to enter that flow state, whether it's through creative process or through meditation or, or whatever, yeah. is I really think that's a key. To when happiness. you're not there, you're there, but you're not there. I mean, you're every all the all the motors are on. I think that's. But your your sensory world is has been this, shut down to focus. This crazy, you know, internet and the phones and Facebook and you know, oh. it, it it just destroys people's ability to pay attention. And I'm, I'm as guilty as anybody, but I think being able to get in that state is it has key. It, it, can only, it can't come. It's got to come from passion. Yeah, I think easier. I I would find it's much easier for me to be in passion than it is to to retreat in meditation. Mm-hmm. And I, I have not that I tried it. I just don't think I'm very good at sure. it. Sure, you know, or have other things that are as personally fulfilling. Well, you, can, you can get there. Enjoying I guess yourself so. too. Yeah. yeah. Or I can just be up in the mountains in a little, you know, at the end of a valley that I haven't been into. I can go back and. Um, the, oh, this will, I'll love to hear your answer to this. What is the craziest thing that's ever happened to you in the outdoors? And that could be Ooh. with all your travels. I'm sure you've had a, uh, some crazy. Uh, <laughs> craziest thing. And it can be funny, scary. Yeah. I have to think for a second. Uh, <laughs> this is drawing. They got to draw off. Got to draw off a lot of crust to get to this one. <laughs> yeah, it's tough. Uh, well, I don't know why I come to this. I was uh, over hiked and skied over Crested Butte from Aspen, and I was on that other side of the mountain. Mm-hmm. And down a little lower off the high, the, the, the 12,000 feet that I'd climbed over. Mm-hmm. And I climbed over with others, but then they went on to Crested Butte. And I was, I think this is the way it happened. But anyway, I was, I was out there in this bright <coughs> day with wonderful snowfields. And then that part of the, the, of the altitude where you're interspersed parks and trees and sure. parks and trees, you know that. And I, I ran across this guy. He was doing. He was coming up the other way, and I went down to him. There were really two of us there. It was uh, Yvonne Chouinard. Was it really? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> and and he did. I said, you know, I'm Larry, and he said, I'm Yvonne. I said, you know, because I kind of recognize you, Yvonne Chouinard. Yeah. So, so we had to pass a couple words. There was no great, like you know, spiritual exchange or yeah, anything yeah, like yeah. that. It was just. We were both there for our own version of the same reasons. Very interesting. That is, he's one of my heroes. Uh, well, guy. mine too, for many reasons. Uh, giving back, inventive, uh-huh. starting a company out of passion. Yes. Takes, not afraid to take his own path. No. That is. And he's giving back a lot. Uh, 
And I, I met, I then re-met him at a film test in uh, uh, Five Points. Okay. Uh, at Kerbendale, and I mentioned this to him, and, and he again, just like the Indian girl. Yeah. Yeah. He <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't you know it wasn't forefront in his mind. Yeah. That that would even happen. Wow. And I was. <laughs> what do you mean it wasn't important to? <laughs> That's great. Um, this is another question that I'll be interested to hear your answer to. What is your favorite location in the West? And it could be. A trail, top of a certain mountain, a lake, town. Yeah, favorite location in the West. It would be... In the hill country outside of Geyser, Montana. Uh Okay? And that's near the Highwood Mountains or out from Great Falls. Sure. But it's when I'm out there walking my ass off mm-hmm. watching dogs watching the wind and usually with someone hunting sharp-tailed grouse just walking miles mm-hmm. and I don't know if that's a, there's too many like, too many parallels to that but that that's the one that flashed it that's it yeah to me yeah yeah that's uh, a great answer but it's you know it it's broader than place mm-hmm. clearly it's that that's the one that just most recently came to my mind. And, and that is uh, because also it's like real prairie grass. It's like buffalo grass. Yeah. The shit they ate on before. It's supposed to be here. Before all these fields of weed and stuff sure. came about. And, and uh, That's a great answer. So it was, it was native. It was as it was. Mm-hmm. And you could see mountains in the distance or climb these cliffs or you climb these buttes. I didn't climb them because there's too many rattlesnakes. <laughs> uh, but that's part of the deal. I used to, when I was a kid, uh, 11 years old, I had this fly rod, uh-huh. and I'd attach a copper wire with a loop on the end, and I'd go rattlesnake hunting, and I could sell them to the vet. Oh wow! Who who milked it? So you just scoop them up with the fly. Well, rod? yeah, and then I had this big glove that scared the shit out of me. This snake is—you got him by the neck, but he's—he's he's not happy. We're you know we're hardwired to be scared, and, of this and thing. so these had these big no nobody could no fang to get through these loads. You grab them by the neck and just <laughs> hope you did. They shove them in a gunny sack. There's usually two of us. I mean this is, and sometimes we just had to put them on the ground until they quieted down. Put a fork over there, <laughs> you know, like a fork, nail their head to the ground, not through, not killing them. Sure, of course, but uh, yeah. Pretty wild moments. That uh, is wild. Wow. Um, <laughs> so this is a this is another question I'll be interested to hear your take on. What do you think the biggest challenge and or opportunity facing the American West is currently? I think they're the one and the same word as I use in architecture. Impediments are only opportunities. Mm-hmm. So, what is it? Um, I think water. And water quality probably are going to be where the next war of the West is fought. And it's being fought in, in regulatory worlds all over the place. Yeah. Water, water rights, water quality, water use. Mm-hmm. There's a whole lesson, even for ranchers into, you know, there's a, there's a use it or lose it. Oh, yeah. Part of water, as you know well. Uh, if you're selling ranches, you know, goddamn well. Yeah. I'll and tell you, the more I learn, the more I realize how to be more, uh, 
sustainable in the way you irrigate. And if the laws let you, if the laws would let you dump that back into the river, the stuff you didn't use, mm-hmm. you know, then you wouldn't have to, you wouldn't have to in the fall, you know, crank up your pump meter to use your allocation of, of owned water rights. Yeah, out of fear like of that. that. So I think water. Yeah. And, and that implies everything from riparian quality to, to the clarity and enrichment of rivers for fishing and use and enjoyment. That backs up into watersheds. Mm-hmm. I mean, it goes forever. But if you want to bring it down, I think that's my answer. I think that's a good answer. And I think you're not alone in... in Everybody I ask that question to, I bet, I bet eighty percent of the people say water. It's there's no way around it. It's, you know whether yeah. you're a, whether you're a rancher or whether you're a, a you know a, a, just a straight up real estate developer. Yeah. No matter what side you're on, it, it's going to be an issue. Right. Um, then one more kind of quick question. It well, you don't have to give a quick answer, but if you were, if you could go back and give yourself when you were graduating from architecture school, say you just got out. And knowing everything you know now, and you could give yourself some advice, what would that advice be? The advice goes beyond architecture school. It goes to what I give my kids. If you're lucky enough to find your passion, follow it, irrespective of where it takes you. No end goals. Not not that you're going to make, you know, half a million bucks a year. Mm-hmm. Find a passion. Somehow everything works out. Mm-hmm. Learn it. Follow it. And, and I did that. I didn't know I was doing that, though. Mm-hmm. So it, uh, there's no shift in the paradigm mm-hmm. for me because I got lucky. You know, it's like there's the blind squirrel that finally found an acorn. <laughs> <laughs> well. and, uh, so, so I don't really think that answers your... No, I think that's a great one because I, I would imagine, I bet when you were when you went to work at the big law firm, I mean, the big architecture firm, I would think, even though you were enjoying it, I would think you, there would be a question of, well, should I stay here and play it safe or should I follow my passion and go out on my own? Well, there was exactly that question. Yeah. Stay, they had, I was here, I sat there with two graduate degrees, you know, yeah. doing stuff I thought I supposed to I do. could do, uh-huh. but I didn't think it was in, in one firm. It takes bravery. And I just sat there and finished, do, did this rudimentary shit. But I, all along, was always going to be my own man. And so... It comes through. It, it comes worked. through in your personal life yeah. and it comes through in your work. Yeah. yeah. And and uh, uh, that was important to me. It was important to me to learn the tools and mm-hmm. to, to uh, assert myself toward that goal, which I did sort of out of accident anyway. Uh, yeah, we found our... <clears throat> Uh, there it was in Aspen, starting a firm. Nobody lined up at the door. So what did we do? We, we set up a dark room, took black and white photos, and we went skiing. And it was on a ski lift that we met this guy. It says, oh, you're, you're an architect. And I'm sure he was a, he was a developer, but a nice, really nice guy. So he said, oh, well, you guys are, or you are, it was me. Well, you're an architect. Well, I'm thinking of building this house in Snowmass. Well, anyway, we connected Mm-hmm. He uh, it was a big house, the biggest house in Aspen at that point, but and that was okay at that point too. But he said, "Well, uh, <clears throat> what do you charge? Charge? <laughs> I mean, I have no idea what a fee, how to figure out a fee." So we went back, the two of us, three of us, 
<clears throat> we added up gas cost, rental, ski tickets, meals, you know, uh -huh. basics, and added it up for four months worth of time and said, here's our, it's this. <laughs> <laughs> Seems like a logical way to do it. <laughs> And later he told us that we'd left forty thousand dollars on the table. <laughs> oh, lesson learned. And it was and it was all it was such a joyous deal. We didn't care. If we yeah, left oh, yeah. we got to work. That's great. That's a great story. Uh, so next to the last question, if you could make a request of people listening to this podcast, and it's people who love the American West in one way or the other, whether that's through sports or art or you know, like you're, you know, through their profession, um, is there a certain thing, uh, ask you would make of the people listening? It would be to listen with all your senses mm -hmm. to the opportunities and spirituality embodied in the West then and now. And I think there, you'll find them the same. I think the outcomes and the decision making were about different values. Or outcome, or, or end games, or outcomes. But it would be find that sense of adventure, employ it through your lifestyle to your passions. But that, if you really get, you know, what the earth is saying and what the history of of settlement and habitation mm -hmm. were saying, you know, listen to the listen to that, or you know, you get it in different ways, but. Sure. If your antennas are up, I think you'll find that there is a spirit of living in the West that's entirely different from the spirit of living in other places. I mean, it is a nation. Yes. To me. I agree. That's kind of, I, think I guess great. that's what I'd say. Yeah, I think that's great. I think, I think and that's great. And, and, and antennas up doesn't mean you're going to get it, but you're going to get it in your way. Sure. Through, through the layers of your own experience. If you're willing. Very wise. So how can people learn more about you and your firm? I, I know your firm's got a, a Get on website. website. I'll you put know, links to all of that. And never make a decision simply based on a website. That just gets you in the door. Sure. Then we talk about, are we connected? Mm -hmm. Do we do we have enough shared values to launch? Yeah. <laughs> That's a good position to be in. You know, it's, I've, I've heard time and time again, I'm starting to experience it in my career that over time, the longer you work, the, the, the more you attract people that are like you, like-minded people. Oh, I think so. And, uh, it seems like you're in a, a great place with that. I am. Well, and I get it. I will make the choice. I mean, I'm not afraid to say to somebody in the nicest possible polite way that I don't think we share enough, uh, whatever values mm -hmm. that this would be productive for either of us. Mm -hmm. And I'm interested in being, you know, productive by that. I mean, engaged, sure. turned on. Yeah. And do we, you know, if you, if you like log cabins, I know a guy in Jackson yeah. <laughs> who, should be your, who should be your man. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is so great. Thank you for taking the time. I really oh, appreciate it. Was it was really fun. I mean, it just became a chat, and I like that. that the, you, you reduced it to a, an informal. Good. Well, I don't know what I'm doing. So. Kind of chat. <laughs> and, uh, well, that's good. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hey, it's Ed again. 
Thanks so much for listening to the podcast, and thanks for listening to that particular episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Before you go, I've got three quick things. Number one, if you like the podcast, please do me a huge favor. Either pass it along to a friend who may be interested, share it on your social media, and or go to iTunes and give it a five-star review. All those things would mean a lot to me, and they would really help to spread the word about the podcast. Number two, if you've listened to many of these episodes, you know that I love reading and I love talking about books. Every other month, I send out a quick email with a few books that I've recently read and highly recommend. The subjects are varied, but they're pretty much all nonfiction with an emphasis on history, biographies, adventure narratives, and topics related to the American West. There are no sales pitches for ranches, no spam, no other kind of nonsense, just books. So if you'd like to sign up for the list, head to Mountain and Prairie slash reading, or just go to Mountain and Prairie and there's a massive tab at the top that says book recommendations. Click on it. There are a ton of good books that I've read. Some of the old email lists are on there. Uh, you can go crazy. There are a lot of books. And finally, if you know anyone I should interview for the podcast, please don't hesitate to reach out and let me know. All my contact info is at mountainandprairie.com, and I'm on all the social media stuff, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, blah, blah, blah. So feel free to reach out. I'd love to have some recommendations and suggestions of interesting people I should meet. All right, that's it. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon. Thank you.